Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopez, and today I'm, I'm here with Dr. Patrick Tom Hogan. He is Distinguished Professor of the Department of English and the Institute for Brain and Cognitive Sciences at the University of Connecticut in the U.S., his specialties are literary theory, cognitive and effective science of literature, and world literature. He is the author of several books, including The Mind and Its Stories, What Literature Teaches Us About Emotion, and Beauty and Sublimity. So, Dr. Colm Hogan, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so the first thing I would like to ask you, and I think that it is a very, it is very important for people to get a good grasp of this concept because it is very central for today's discussion, uh, and because we're talking about uh, literary universals and aesthetic universals, and uh, to talk about these, I mean, we include. Uh, knowledge from several areas, including psychology, anthropology, and also, of course, the humanities. So, what are basically human universals? There are different phrases used for this general area of study. Human universals is one, cultural universals, uh, more specific terms such as linguistic or literary universals, uh, and they have slightly different usages. Uh, human universals and cultural universals are generally used, not uniformly, but generally used to refer to patterns that recur across all uh, cultures and traditions. Um, linguistic universals and literary universals, those phrases are used more broadly uh, to cover patterns that recur across what are called genetically and aerially distinct traditions or cultures with a greater frequency than would be expected by chance. So. Um, uh, in the terminology of linguistics, uh, human or cultural universals, that those phrases are usually used to refer to what linguists or what I in discussing uh, literary universals would refer to as absolute universals or sometimes near absolute universals, patterns that recur across almost all uh, cultures or traditions. Uh, whereas a literary and linguistic uh, study of universals would include what are called statistical and implicational universals. Statistical universals are, as I say, those that they may uh, recur. Uh, suppose by chance you would expect, uh, uh, take a linguistic example, uh, uh, head complement relations in a phrase. Uh, you would, since they can go either head first or head last, you would or take the specific example of subjects and objects. Since they can go either subject-object or object-subject, they can go in those two orders. By chance, you would expect them to recur 50, roughly 50% subject-object and 50% object-subject. Well, in fact, across languages, it does sometimes happen that you get object-subject as normal word order. But it's extremely rare. So it's, it, it's considered a statistical universal with a high degree of probability that you'll get subject-object order. Um, the basic difference for those uh, distinctions in uh, uh, terminology uh, would be that uh, b there'd be basically two. First of all, 
if you're interested only in absolute universals, you're probably going to look almost entirely to evolutionary explanations. Now, in fact, you can get an absolute universal without it being fully determined by evolutionary precedents, uh, because there are many other things that recur across cultures, and we'll probably get to some of those in the course of the conversation. But uh, it tends to be the case that people look to evolution. Uh, now, evolution is certainly important in looking at statistical universals, um, but you're also more likely to look at other factors, sometimes factors about the physical universe, the things that we encounter in the world, uh, sometimes uh, factors having to do with group dynamics, the way that groups tend to interact, sometimes complex systems analyses, just the way that complex systems tend to work, and so on. So uh, those that that would be the basic... Uh, uh, and so uh, to give a very brief example, uh, and when I discuss narrative universals, patterns and narrative that recur across culturally, whether they recur in all traditions or only in a surprisingly large number of them, a statistically significantly larger number than would be expected, uh, either way, I have a whole a range a whole range of things that go into explaining them. They are they aren't determined. Uh, they aren't simply adaptive. They aren't simply the uh, product of uh, genetic evolution. Mm -hmm. okay. And we'll get into some of those later. Mm -hmm. Yes, sure. Uh, and it's very interesting that you distinguish between absolute and statistical universals, because that means that for us to consider something as a human universal, it doesn't really have to occur 100% of the time in all existing or studied human cultures, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's some people uh, are unhappy with the word universal when in, applied in that context, and I can understand that. Um, if, if we wanted to, we could refer to them as cross-cultural patterns or something like that. I, I use the word universal because... I use as my model linguistics, the study of linguistics, and they, that's the way it's used traditionally there. Um, I can understand people's qualms about it, but the reason for making that one continuous category is not to mask the differences. Certainly there are differences between things that recur in all cultures and things that recur in, say, 70% of cultures, uh, even though you might expect them to recur in 20 or something, 20%. Uh, there's certainly a difference there, um, but in pursuing a research program on cross-cultural patterns or universals, you want to recognize the continuity that places some patterns in uh, broad distributions around the globe without uh, interaction of the traditions. And that, I mentioned before, genetically and aerially distinct, that's what that means. Genetically means they have, genetically distinct means they have different or, origins. Not uh, genetic in that sense is referred to uh, refers to genesis, not to chromosomes. Uh, so genetically distinct and aerially distinct means they haven't influenced one another extensively later on. So you want this part of a continuous these all of these different patterns part of a continuous research program, so that you're looking for uh, as you're in your research program you're looking for explanations that will further your understanding of both what recurs cross-culturally and what can vary. 
And so ideally, you'd have a hierarchy of anal uh, explanatory principles that would tell you why this pattern recurs 100% of the time, this one 90% of the time, and so on. It would also tell you what the relations among them are. So that uh, something that recurs 100% of the time will presumably be one part of the explanation for things that recur specifications of that general pattern that recur less frequently. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's also very interesting because for us to determine what are human universals and the list of them, of course, we can resort to a multitude of different disciplines, including psychology, anthropology, neuroscience, and also the humanities in terms of analyzing some types of sources like the arts and texts and things like that. So, I mean, in order for us to determine what are the human universals, being them absolute or, st or only statistical, uh, it, it functions as a sort of network of cumulative evidence from several different disciplines and sources, correct? Absolutely. Um, I might, uh, since I found out yesterday I can share a screen here, I might just show you, I mean, I, I think you've seen it, but uh, uh, the Literary Universals Project, is that up on your screen now? Mm -hmm. This is a project that... Um, Vito Evola and uh, Nigel Fab and I uh, initiated. It's housed at the University of Connecticut. Um, it's a, a website that publishes articles on different aspects of literary universal study. Uh, it includes, for example, an article by Donald Brown on human universals, Donald Brown being one of the, and maybe the major uh, anthropologist writing on that topic, who's written on that topic. Um, and the point of having a, uh, a, a center for research, it isn't a center, that makes it sound like it's an institution, uh, a central place where research can be funneled. Uh, the idea of it is that you need people from many different disciplines and also even within a given discipline, many different subfields. So if you're gonna discuss certain aspects of literary universals, you, most of the things that I discuss are fairly um, uh, general patterns of narrative structure. And for that, you can largely re rely on translations because translations can be, unless, they're, uh, unless the translator has made a decision to change the story, the story can be pretty easily preserved from the original to the translation. But there are other things that you need to know the language for. So if you're discussing image patterns, for example, image patterns don't, aren't preserved across translations. So you need people who know if you're going to look at image patterns or whatever, uh, anything that's more textually uh, ingrained, uh, more textually uh, defined or specified. Uh, you need people to compare Chinese and uh, Kinyarwanda and... Uh, Arabic and uh, English. You need people who know Chinese and Kinyarwanda and uh, uh, Arabic and English. So uh, that's the purpose of something like the Literary Universals Project. Um, the other aspect to the, let me switch back to the, um, uh, stop sharing. So the other aspect of the uh, interdisciplinarity uh, that you mentioned 
is that it has to enter into even individual research programs. So um, we might get to later some discussion of um, aesthetics. I, I think we will because mm -hmm. you've indicated a number of things you're going to ask about that. Um, when I first began researching, trying to formulate an account of aesthetic response, I isolated a couple of different... There were a couple of different bodies of research that pointed towards distinct uh, information processing uh, aspects of aesthetic uh, pleasure. Mm -hmm. And uh, once I had two, I had the question of what, why would those two, why would you have two? Is there some pattern to that? Uh, and um, that was already relying on empirical research. But when I tried to figure out why there were two, it struck me that these two were two of three prominent ways of defining uh, conceptual categories. This therefore suggested that the third way of defining conceptual category might have aesthetic effects also, which is what I turn to next. And we can give examples of that later on, assuming we get to it. Or when I was, you mentioned the mind and its stories, when I was re researching, doing research work for the mind and its stories, I read, I simply read across a wide range of genetically and aerially unrelated traditions. Uh, and I didn't do, I was just actually doing that without a project in mind. And I began to notice these patterns across stories. And uh, as I formulated them, I began reading other traditions that I hadn't read more systematically. Once I had formulated a couple of the heroic and romantic patterns that I saw recurring across a range of traditions. I uh, sought to find a body of, of literature, or in this case, orature, mostly orature, that I hadn't consulted before, uh, a new uh, storytelling, uh, and um, read a number of works in that, which largely seemed to me to corroborate what I had said but there were also stories in there that seemed to form other patterns, which I then took up as part of the research project, going back to the traditions I had investigated initially. So these are two examples of the way that this uh, multiplicity, either multiplicity within literature itself or multiplicity across empirical disciplines outside of literature, that multiplicity has to continually be refolded into an ongoing research program. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. So let's now dig a little bit more into uh, aesthetic human universals. You already alluded, alluded a little bit to them earlier in the conversation. But, uh, okay, so should, should we start off by perhaps talking about the evolutionary basis of them, because I mean, uh, I guess that the evolutionary basis is not yet very well established because there are several hypotheses, I think, and uh, of course it also uh, depends on what we're talking about, because I guess that if we're talking about be, uh, for example, beauty, what we consider beautiful when we look at other people, perhaps uh, we would have to resort to uh, things related to sexual selection and perhaps what gets expressed 
in terms of the phenotype that is a proxy to good genes in both men and women. But perhaps if we're talking about uh, more um, things related to nature, perhaps then uh, we can talk about the savanna hypothesis that some people put on the table that perhaps what we like to see uh, in terms of paintings uh, and uh, I mean visually, aesthetically, uh, is what we were exposed to uh, in the in the environments that we evolved in, and in this particular case, the savanna, uh, that is a, an open space where we can get a wide range of vision to see if there are predators uh, coming close by, and uh, and also to be able to to get a look at the prey that we that we want to capture and things like that. But basically, the environment we evolved in and that our brains uh, were exposed to and were adapted to, let's say, to deal with that specific environment. But I, I mean, there are a lot of things on the table. So could you please help us here by trying to refer to what are the important aspects to consider here in what pertains to the evolutionary basis of aesthetic universals and 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 I already uh, talked a little bit about beauty perhaps that's a different subject but if you could do it please right um well th this is really interesting because um you had said before you would ask something along those general lines but you hadn't given the examples of uh human beauty uh, with uh, uh, uh preferable genetic background uh, exam uh, exemplified in a phenotype, um, uh, nor had you given the example of landscape. And I was, when I was thinking about answering the more general question you brought up, I was, I had, I could even show it to you. I had jotted down that I could begin by mentioning uh, landscape uh, and uh, something a little more specific, but the same general idea as human, uh, your comments on human beauty, which is uh, facial symmetry. Um, the reason I, bring I would have brought both of those up and the reason you brought both of them up, the reason we converged on that is that those are two standard examples of an evolutionary hypothesis with regard to aesthetics. Um, I actually differ from most people who discuss beauty in uh, evolutionary terms uh, in that I think uh, beauty ha should be explained by more general principles which are themselves adaptive. Uh, in some cases, the adaptation, uh, the adaptive function of those more general principles may indeed have been influenced by their specification in, say, uh, facial symmetry, human facial symmetry. That may have contributed functionally to uh, the evolution of uh, aesthetics, but it isn't a, it, it, the, evo the evolutionary principles are not specific to those two cases. So, um, I take um, facial symmetry, and the same thing applies to body left-right uh, symmetry. Um, my argument, as you know, from uh, uh, beauty and sublimity is that empirically there are a range of things that seem to foster aesthetic pleasure, our aesthetic response to anything, uh, trees, um, objects of use, uh, tools, um, uh, human beings, uh, uh, 
the way rooms are set up. Uh, uh, I was recently watching um, uh, The East is Red, a uh, 1965 propaganda film from the People's Republic of China, which is kind of crazy politically, uh, all praise to our great leader Mao Zedong and so on, but it's visually stunning. It's just gorgeous. And I think in many, not many, in all of these cases, the same information processing and emotion processing uh, aspects recur. Uh, So uh, what about facial symmetry then? Well, my contention is that there's this large body of research that indicates what I call prototype approximation is a contributory factor to us uh, responding with aesthetic pleasure to a target. Prototype approximation is roughly averaging across experienced instances, but with a um, what Ramachandran calls peak shift. Uh, it's a bias toward uh, difference based on how you categorize the target. So um, uh, a good example, I'm, I'm going to show you something from not not a uh, not anything that I've done. Uh, it's uh, uh, let me see my current slide. Um, this is this uh, website faceresearch.org. It's it's fun to play with, so people might like to know about it. So the uh, program will take various faces. You can click on various faces. We'll click on her. Uh, click on her. Click on her. Uh, let's click on her. So I'm perfectly fine-looking people. I'm certainly not uh, going to criticize them, but you average them, and generally people say the composite that averages across the different compo- uh, different uh, contributory faces is more aesthetically pleasing than any of the contributing faces considered on their own. So why is that? Well, the more faces you average, the closer you come to a prototype. Again, a prototype being roughly an average. Now, I did all women there because uh, one of our uh, most uh, salient and um, uh, forceful uh, forms of categorization is by gender. Uh, and so um, uh, in Richard Russell's research, for example, uh, Richard Russell's study, this is from a, an article of his, uh, which you may, might even know, um, uh, Russell manipulated facial luminance uh, differences within portraits of men and women. And men and women start out with slight differences in facial luminance so that uh, there tends to be a greater um, uh, circumocular uh, versus uh, the rest of the face uh, luminance for uh, women that for women tends to be greater. And similarly, the uh, lip versus uh, lips versus the rest of the face tends to be uh, a starker contrast for women uh, than for men. And so, um, uh, Russell manipulated uh, these facial luminance differences and asked people to judge uh, the faces aesthetically. 
and found that if you increased facial luminance on male faces, that decreased aesthetic the judgment of aesthetic pleasure, whereas if you increase them on female faces, it increased the aesthetic pleasure. So in keeping with a difference that was, in other words, if you enhance the category-based difference, uh, you increase the uh, aesthetic pleasure. If you diminish or reverse the category-based difference, you diminish the aesthetic pleasure. So uh, this, uh, the reason, the reason I emphasize this is this is all explicable by reference to prototype approximation. None of it has to be specifically selected for in sexual terms. Now, this isn't to say that um, mate selection doesn't contribute to prototype approximation, but prototype approximation would presumably affect everything. It would affect our response to trees, our response to fruit, our response to vegetables, a whole range of things uh, we'd have uh, preferred we'd have preference for prototype approximation and that's also true as the result of that mechanism we don't we don't confine our aesthetic response to mates our aesthetic response is related to a whole series of I mean is ev evoked by a whole series of other phenomena uh, I probably should pause there. Uh, as you know, I have other factors contributing to aesthetic response that are not uh, prototype-based. There are, um, in terms of uh, information processing, there are some targets that uh, do not lend themselves well to um, do not lend themselves well to prototype approximation, and in those cases, we tend to uh, respond aesthetically uh, in terms of rule abstraction. If we're able to isolate a rule-governed pattern without um, habituating to it, in other words, it, it hasn't become ordinary. Uh, Actually, before stopping, I should say that the uh, non-habituation principle applies to prototyping, too, because uh, uh, just as a general rule, we respond less to things we're habituated to. That's what habituation means. Uh, and uh, actually, let me, let me close this and switch back to uh, uh, me. We, um, we respond less to things that we habituate to. Uh, and in consequence, whether it's negative or positive, we don't have a strong response to it. So um, uh, things that are habitual are no longer aesthetically uh, consequential properties. So um, uh, you average across faces and the average you come up with will have two eyes and one nose. Uh, we don't count having two eyes and one nose as an aesthetically uh, uh, consequential property. Oh, oh I, I just realized I forgot something. Uh, I brought up uh, facial symmetry at the beginning and bodily symmetry, and I never got back to symmetry in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, symmetry uh, results automatically from prototype approximation. As you average across faces, uh, people, people's faces, some people's faces will be asymmetrical with a left side bias and some with a right side bias and you average across 
many faces, and we see many, many faces in daily life. As you average across them, you automatically get a prototype that is uh, left-right symmetrical. So left-right symmetry comes out of prototype approximation just as a given. That's something that's going to happen when you have prototype approximation. Okay. So an elegant explanation for that, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes, right. And I want to add a follow-up to that because since we're talking about the... Um, of course, you didn't limit yourself to the evolutionary basis of beauty and aesthetics or, or human beauty and human aesthetics in this case. But I would also like to ask you again, uh, referring to evolution, if you think that there's good evidence that supports uh, the hypothesis put forth by people like uh, Geoffrey Miller and Steven Pinker, that perhaps uh, um, artistic behavior was also one of the targets of sexual selection? Yeah, I... I'm just not convinced that the bowerbird has anything to do with um, uh, aesthetics. Um, I, uh, I mean, sh sure, there there might be some contribution, uh, but I tend to think that um, uh, aesthetic function is aesthetic response is principally a function of. In cognitive terms, prototype approximation and rule abstraction, which are well established as evolutionary products. I mean, clearly our ability to abstract rule, unexpected rules, to isolate new patterns, it's one of the most fundamental cognitive processes we have. And the idea that this would give us pleasure when we were able to uh, abstract principles from experience is... Um, I, I think basically no one who accepts anything evolutionary would reject that. I don't think, I, I mean, that seems that we all agree on that. Um, similarly, uh, prototype approximation is a little more controversial because some people don't accept prototypes. They think we sort of ad hoc uh, generalize on the basis of exemplars. That seems to me enormously unlikely because it basically says every time we generalize, we just rid the brain of whatever we generalized. It just disappears. And we go back to what, where we were with the exemplars beforehand. That seems extremely unlikely. Um, I do think exemplars are important, but I, I don't think that, that they eliminate uh, prototypes. A anyway, that's a little more controversial, but I, I think is fairly well established. Uh, I add to that emotion, uh, emo emo emotional aspects of uh, aesthetic response, and these would include um, uh, not interest, which is sort of the converse of non-habituation. You haven't habituated, so you maintain uh, attentional orientation toward the target. Um, uh, some sort of um, a reward system involvement. The reward system, in this case, uh, having two components, the uh, opioid component relating to the experience of pleasure and the dopaminergic uh, system uh, component relating to basically uh, the urge to continue on in a, a process of uh, engagement. Uh, seeking is what Panksepp calls the system for that reason. Um, 
Uh, those are important. Those, however, are basically important to any sort of activity. If you're going to do anything, you need uh, some sort of interest and some sort of, uh, in other words, non-habituation and some sort of uh, reward system involvement, or you're probably not going to do it, whether it's reading a book or digging a ditch or exercising or whatever. Uh, one thing that seems to be more distinctive of aesthetic response is um, uh, attachment system involvement. And again, attachment clearly did not evolve for aesthetic reasons. It involved for childbearing, child raising, parent-child bonding, and so on. Um, uh, but there's a lot of evidence, even though weirdly the evidence hasn't been formulated in terms of attachment system, there's a lot of evidence that attachment response is very important to aesthetic feeling. Uh, so uh, as I discuss in uh, Beauty and Sublimity, there's research indicating that uh, one finds faces in general more attractive, more beautiful uh, when one's, jeez, uh, 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 oxytocin levels have been increased. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, so those are the factors that seem to me crucial to aesthetic pleasure. And as such, uh, they are certainly evolved. And in some cases, aesthetic uh, uh, response may have contributed to the evolution. So I'm not saying the, the, the aesthetic feelings are irrelevant. They can be relevant, but they're not, it's, they're not processes narrowly tailored to aesthetics. The uh, uh, second thing I would mention is in connection with this, um, some researchers seem to think that there's something particularly male about at least certain forms of aesthetics, and that seems to me that seems to me misguided. Um, and uh, in terms of the uh, processes I mentioned, I see no reason to to think that. Well, I could imagine somebody arguing that uh, because of their role in childbearing, uh, women might be more uh, attachment sensitive than men are. I hope that is not the case. I'm, I certainly would not want to say that it's the case, but I could imagine an argument in that direction. But I see nothing in the system that I've defined that would favor males. So uh, I'm, my whole system goes in a somewhat different direction. Um, uh, what to do about the Bowerbird? I I don't I, I don't know. I'm I'm just not inclined to or the peacock's tail. I'm just not inclined to even even though we yes peacock's tail is beautiful. We respond to it as beauty, in part because it's it's non-habitual patterning. Um, but I I don't see it at those as uh, sources of aesthetic response, even though they can be targets of aesthetic response. Mm -hmm. Very well. Okay, so now let's see if I can articulate this question properly because it's a very difficult one and this came to my mind from all that you just exposed, let's say. Uh, that is so you refer to the fact that there are very many factors that go into uh, our experience of aesthetics and beauty and all of those things and even more generally our our artistic expressions and things like that but 
So uh, there are some factors that perhaps some people would classify as socio-cultural ones, like, for example, the fact that something is popular, the fact that something is held in high regard by people who hold status in a particular society, uh, perhaps things also related to conspicuous consumption, because sometimes we appreciate some things aesthetically, not really because of their intrinsic value, but because they signal something else related to social aspects and to our position in the social hierarchy and things like that. So, but even those, they, they have a biological basis to them because, I mean, the ways we socialize with people also have a lot to do with our ability to survive because it was really important for us during our evolutionary history that we cooperated with other people because, I mean, we as humans by ourselves, we are not that good a predator or something like that to be able to uh, survive and to reproduce in our own. Uh, so uh, that, that, that is one aspect of, of my question. The other aspect is, so having all of this in mind and perhaps uh, these social influences that also go into how we experience beauty and aesthetics and how we report those experiences, uh, couldn't it also be the case that perhaps sometimes there's a mismatch between what people really experience as being beautiful and what they report to other people that they experience as being beautiful just because perhaps they have one experience but since it doesn't go along with what is considered uh, um, proper experience, let's say, in the society that they are part of, then p perhaps there's, uh, th that's a confounding factor uh, when we're doing studies on, uh, on human uh, aesthetic preferences. Or, oh. I, I, I mean, do, do all of these make sense or, or not? Oh, absolutely. The, an excellent question. Uh, there are three things that I would say about it. I hope I will remember all three when I get to the end. Um, the, the first one is uh, in Beauty and Sublimity, I make a general distinction between what I call social beauty and aesthetic response. And social beauty is a sort of competence we have to say what people in general are going to judge as beautiful. Uh, this is um, more general than, than beauty. We have a whole range of social judgments that bear not only on beauty and sublimity, uh, literary excellence, artistic excellence, profundity. Um, there are um, there are a lot of things that are widely considered profound, things in literary theory that are widely considered profound in my profession that I think are just fake. Um, but uh, I, I don't know the degree to which people genuinely feel they're profound, but you're sort of not competent in the field if you don't know that people think they're profound. So, so uh, on the one hand, there are judgments of what people will say is beautiful. Uh, that's what I call social beauty. Uh, on the other hand is aesthetic response, what you actually respond to aesthetically. And so uh, anyway, um, 
and now I've forgotten what I was talking about. Uh, uh, social, oh, aesthetic response. So that um, uh, I usually use the example of somebody might say something like, uh, well, I know my baby isn't much to look at, but to me, she's the most beautiful thing in the world. And they could be speaking hy uh, hyperbolically, uh, but they might well mean it. They might mean that I, there's nothing that gives me greater aesthetic pleasure than looking at this slimy fish-like newborn uh, that anybody else would go bleh to uh, because of attachment system uh, involvement. Um, I mean, that's a sort of extreme example. But uh, so on the one hand, this is pervasive. Our uh, uh, judgments of social beauty can be wildly at odds with our uh, personal uh, aesthetic response. Um, now, uh, to what extent, the two other points are, uh, ha one has to do with um, empirical research, uh, which you sort of brought up at the end, isn't it a confounding factor? And yes, it can be. And I think even though I've relied on uh, research in aesthetics, it varies very widely in uh, the way the questions are formulated and the degree to which these sorts of variables are controlled for. And uh, there are some experiments I discussed uh, briefly. It, it isn't a, at all a focus of beauty and sublimity, but I discussed briefly uh, a couple of experiments that show the degree to which uh, the phrasing of a survey can be completely can make a, a study um, basically worthless uh, because the the uh, what the test subjects are asked is so vague, is so amorphous, is so unclear that you don't have any idea what the anyway. Um, so so that can be a problem. Uh, all that I can say is just like any other research program, as you formulate possible explanations, that will refine your empirical methodology. And hopefully these sorts of distinctions would be taken into account more fully in further studies. Um, I, I've had, for example, uh, productive interchanges with Anjan Chatterjee on this. And I don't know if, um, if he might, uh, I mean, I, do, I don't do that sort of lab research myself, that it'd have to be someone else. Um, but I don't know if he might uh, do lab laboratory research that uh, takes into account those uh, sorts of distinctions, uh, per perhaps. Uh, but as I say, we we I felt that I've had good interchange with him on on uh, these issues. Uh, the third uh, thing is uh, that so we have the distinction between social uh, beauty judgments of social beauty and aesthetic response. And we have the issue of uh, confounding variables, especially these two, the distinction between uh, social beauty and aesthetic response in empirical research. The third is the issue of the degree to which uh, social prestige actually influences our aesthetic response. And um, there are some simple ways in which it does that. Uh, so one simple way in which it does that is that it leads us to question if we have a, a, a if we have a judgment that is uh, out of keeping with those of uh, other people generally in terms of popularity, or those of people we consider uh, uh, experts, people to whom we grant prestige. 
if we have a uh, response that's out of keeping with what we take to be their responses, that can motivate us to distrust our initial response, uh, which can be a good thing. Uh, I'm, I think in literary study, uh, somebody might encounter a, a complicated modernist work, Joyce's Ulysses, uh, Faulkner's uh, As I Lay Dying or uh, Sound in the Fury, um, uh, Virginia Woolf's uh, Interior Monologue and Stream of Consciousness work, uh, might begin it and say, I, I, I had a student, for example, who read Mrs. Dalloway, which I think is one of the most beautiful works ever written. And it just, he had, he hated it. And um, my judgment, the fact that he had to read it for the class um, his and my discussions of it and discussions of what to look for changed his response to it entirely so that by the end of the semester, he loved the book. He felt it was really, he too felt it was really beautiful. And I think in cases like that, that sort of self-questioning is valuable. Um, of course, it can also lead to other problems. Uh, it can lead to body dysmorphia when you have uh, social standards that you readjust your mind to and therefore think that you you have to look anorexic or or if you or if you're a man you have to look like uh mr atlas or something um so it can be problematic too um so in any case i think one route it goes by the the, the influence of social judgment on actual response one route that that proceeds by is through self-questioning self-criticism and and uh re-examining the target and maybe sensitizing yourself to things in the target that you weren't sensitive to before. Um, however, it seems to also have more immediate uh, impact. And I suspect that that has something to do with one's initial uh, emotional stance, uh, the emotional orientation that one has uh, toward the object to begin with. Um, famous studies uh, show that not only do people, well, say you have people tasting wine, it isn't exactly the same thing. It, it's a judgment of pleasure, but whether it's a, an aesthetic, you know, judgment of aesthetic beauty or not, I, it's hard to say. But uh, people tasting wine, when they're uh, told different things about the same wine, they not only overtly judge it differently, but they show greater pleasure uh, neurologically to mm -hmm. the wine that has been labeled more prestigious than to the same wine labeled as less prestigious. And I don't have a good explanation for that. Where I personally would look first would be toward, to something like uh, prior emotional orientation because uh, our emotional orientation either towards persons or towards objects greatly affects our emotional response to them. Uh, and this is true across a wide range of, uh, it's not just true aesthetically. It's true, uh, uh, for example, in um, uh, interracial relations, for example. Um, you know, there are these famous studies where um, people, you have two actors, one white, one black, and uh, you have them do exactly, putatively exactly the same thing. One of them shoves the other playfully. And you have white test subjects who say, when the white guy shoves the black guy 
playfully say, oh, he's shoving him playfully. Then when the black guy shoves the white guy playfully, they say, ooh, he's being aggressive. And it's clearly a function of what their prior emotional stance was. So that, that again, is part of my attempt to find broad explanatory principles that apply in specific cases and aren't particular to aesthetics. Mm -hmm. So excellent question. 